Well, good morning again. Before we begin, there's just a few things I want to say. Um, and that is, as the guy filling in this morning to function in this portion of our corporate worship, it is my job to bring the word of life to bear upon you and your life with faithfulness and power so that your lives may be changed. As some of you have noticed, we're returning to the book of Micah. And we have a difficult passage ahead of us. And um, I confess that my heart is trembling a bit at the task this morning. I just, I, I don't know if um, some of you have heard of Paul Washer, but Paul Washer has a, a popular sermon that he gave where he stood up in front of his congregation and he said, I want to preach today as a dying man to dying men. And that particular sermon is, is well known for the way that he spoke directly and, and powerfully. I, I don't think that I have nearly attained to the piety or, or the level of other men who have said that, but my desire is similar for us this morning. And I just want to say before we begin that I love you. <laughs> I love all of you dearly with uh, affection and I love those of you that I know well and those of you that I don't know as well, those of you who I like less as, less as half and well as you deserve, as Bilbo says. Um, but um, the, I would love to um, have you over to my house and get to know you more to continue and increase our friendship. That is sometime before my baby comes. Um, but I just want you to know that I, I want to give these words to you with love as a dying man. I'm, I'm in my 30s, but I've got gray hairs popping up all over the place, and my body is dying, and so are you. And if there's anything we need to hear before we die, it is the words of life that we need to hear, cling to, and found our lives upon. Micah might be tough, but the Lord attests himself in Micah chapter 2 do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. So, let's get to it. The word of the Lord comes to us this morning from Micah chapter 3. And uh, I find that in passages like this, I need to remind myself that this is the word of God and it's applicable to my life. So, for those of you who are willing or able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of the word. This is the word of God. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones? who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. 
Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced. The diviners put to shame for they shall all cover their lips for there's no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Father, please bless the reading of your word and the proclamation in the ears of your people today. Amen. You may be seated. Have any of you ever heard the expression, you have one job? Anybody? Have you ever used this expression? I tremble a little bit to bring the expression to us because it's so humorous. But there's this expression. It's kind of hard to pinpoint where it started. So the internet says in the 1990s or in the 2000s or as late as 2010 and 11. But there's this phrase, you had one job. And it's a phrase that is used to communicate a little bit of frustration because someone has failed to do the task that they were appointed to do. It would be like if you were to show up at someone's birthday party and the people planning the birthday party got together and you said, okay, you're going to bring the cake, you're going to bring the napkins, you're going to bring the other silverware or whatever, and it's your job to bring the cake. And you show up to the birthday party and everybody's looking at you like, where's the cake? And you're like, oh no. And they're like, come on, man. You had one job. Just bring the cake to the birthday party. Um, it's, it's a little bit of frustration that the expression um, uh, gives, but it's also irony because oftentimes when we use this phrase, there's just an inescapable humor that the failure of the person who was solely responsible to do the act is somehow related to their responsibility in the first place. Um, there's lots of illustrations about this, and I can't go into all of them, but one that I will bring before you is a, a highlighted irony that somebody pointed out from the 1993 movie Jurassic Park. It just so happened that Jurassic Park, in the credit role, listed one name under the job description of Dinosaur Supervisor. <laughs> and the person in 2010 or 11 who took the screenshot of that commented, Come on, you had one job in Jurassic Park. One job. And we all know how that went. As I look to our passage this morning, I can't help but use the same 
expression when I find myself reading about these leaders of Israel, that their job was to do these things and their actions are starkly different. As Micah begins chapter 3, he begins the second and middle section of his book, and um, it begins with three scalding indictments against the judicial and religious leaders of Israel. Before then, it moves on to maybe some of the things that we love and know better in this book of the promises of hope and restoration for God's people after the exile. These indictments of chapter 3 are ironic because they highlight Israel's failure to go through with their core responsibilities. But the truth of this passage is that every person who claims the name of Christ stands in great danger of not actually belonging to him. So if you'd like a roadmap of where we're going, we're going to see God's indictment first against the judicial leaders and rulers of Israel in verses 1 through 4. We'll see God's indictment against the prophets specifically in verses 5 through 8. We'll see a combined indictment against all the leaders of Israel, verses 9 through 12. And lastly, we'll see the reason why we all stand in dire need of the gospel. First, God's indictment against the judicial leaders. Verse 1, And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? First of all, I just have to observe as we go in from chapter 2 to chapter 3 that Micah transitions um, to the second section by linking it to the end of chapter 2. If you remember, chapter 2 is another uh, scathing indictment. Woe to those who practice evil on their beds. They sit on their beds in the middle of the night and they concoct how they can take and, and possess land from others and kick uh, women and children out of their inheritance, out of their beautiful houses. It's a large-scale social injustice, and these people who are in power do whatever they want. They take whatever they want, and God pronounces judgment on them, as he says in chapter 1, you shall go into exile. Um, but at the end of that, he gives a promise of hope, as Micah does at the end of each of these oracles and sections. The promise of hope at the end of chapter 2 was that even though Israel would be sent into exile, the Lord says, I will surely assemble you and gather you as a remnant. I will put you as sheep in a fold, and I will go before you with deliverance as um, this breaking through the gates, this making a breach, and the king, the Lord, passes before them at their head. And then he says, hear you heads of Jacob. So we're brought back from the future of looking forward to God being our perfect head, our perfect king, to the imperfect heads and kings and judicial rulers that we have currently in power, and there's a very stark contrast. These heads are not godly heads. They are not Christ-like heads by any means. They rule over the house of Israel, but they have a job to do, and they're charged with a grave offense in not fulfilling their job description. They are the ones charged 
with administering justice. And instead, their social practices are barbaric and completely against what their positions of leadership were intended for. These rulers are supposed to know justice, as it says in verse 1. Is it not for you to know justice? Come on! You had one job. What is a judge or a judiciary without justice? As we think back to the Old Testament, Jethro gives Moses a precedent for establishing judges in the land. As he says to Moses, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs. The testimony of all of Scripture testifies that the people of Israel were supposed to be a people who loved what is good and hated what is evil. But we find here in verse 2 that these rulers and these heads, they not, only, not, not only do they not know justice, but they don't keep it because they hate what is good and they love what is evil the exact opposite of what they're supposed to do. Furthermore, Micah describes their barbaric behavior in leading God's people with this stark picture of cannibalism, of a human butchery, as there's these verbs here of how these leaders tear the skin, they eat the flesh, they flay, they break, they chop, like these people are just meat to be thrown into a pot for eating. These people in power consume the people that they are called to serve instead of helping them to find justice and peace. There are similarities to these levels of social injustice that we can see in our culture today. America makes significant contributions to the world's human trafficking, pornographic, and abortion industries. We are known as the land of liberty, and yet Americans are objectified and objectify. They are consumed, and they consume others. We make our deeds evil. Although individuals may be sworn into the ideals of justice, equality, and righteousness, they exploit the weak for personal gain and do not seek the welfare of the people they are called to serve. Now, I realize that these statements I'm making are kind of political. They can seem kind of political. But before any of you gets your blood pumping one way or another, I just want you to know I'm talking about you. I'm talking about your heart and mine. I'm talking about the way we slowly slip from loving good and hating evil to actually loving what is evil and hating what is good. We may never admit it, but somehow we find ourselves there. As an individual Christian, you may not be guilty of the large-scale injustices that, that plague our nation, but we entertain ourselves with things that objectify humans and treat them like meat for the pot. We are sworn in 
and charged to be God's ambassadors on earth. But instead of radically loving God and loving others like we are called to do, we love ourselves and we use others, especially when they will give us what we want. The verdict that God gives to these rulers in verse 4 is a punishment appropriate to their crimes. While the people have cried out for help but have only been consumed by their leaders, now God says they will cry to the Lord but he will not answer them. When the leaders, when the rulers are the ones realizing their desperate need and they are crying out to the Lord, they will only find him to be silent. God will not answer their cries. He will hide his face from them because they have made their deeds evil. Of course, we know that God hiding his face does not mean that he is not perfectly aware of the fact that they're crying out to him. He's omniscient, after all. He knows. He's omnipresent. He's there. But when they call out to him in their distress, he does not hear and he does not listen. It means that God will hide his face of mercy, of compassion, and of steadfast love from these rulers because the countenance of God is righteously consumed by his wrath against their sin because they have made their deeds evil. It is terrifying to consider that we also can experience this silence from God. You may ask yourself, how did I ever end up here? Or you may be startled to find that in the alcoves of your heart, you actually love what is evil and detest what is good. You know what is good, you know you should do it, but you, it's the last thing you're going to do. It starts when we harden our hearts to the conviction of the Lord, when we become callous to his warnings. Then we make concessions and we justify what is evil so that we don't actually believe that we're doing evil or loving it when we truly are. As a result, you may find that God feels strangely distant from you when it finally does suit you to call out to him. God says in Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. Let's move on. The second indictment is against the prophets in verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets 
who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. A few observations. First of all, Micah starts the second indictment um, specifically addressed to the prophets with a little bit of tragic irony, I suppose. The prophets are known as those people who begin everything they say as saying, thus says the Lord, right? But Micah says to them, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets. The offense of the prophets is that the prophets led the people astray. Come on! You had one job. But these prophets give a message that benefits themselves more than it benefits others. The primary role of a prophet, especially during this time in Israel's history, was to be God's mouthpiece as God brought his word to his people. But the prophets are selfish. They do not seek the Lord. And when they have the opportunity to twist things for their own personal or selfish gain, they do so. And we don't have to look far in today's day and age to find this kind of corruption or abuse of spiritual leadership. We have a, a church culture in America that's fond of megachurch pastors with the, the lapel, right, Jim? Um, we have a, a, a market for televangelists who say what you want to hear, and we have a host of spiritual leaders and false teachers on the internet who give all kinds of garbage teaching. What I find most troubling about this is not that there is an abundance of false teachers in our world, but that we mishandle the word of God all the time for our personal gain. We mix the truth of the world with what we pick and choose to be the truth of the Bible. We declare our opinions about Scripture more often than we actually search and find God's intended meaning in Scripture. And, frankly, we lead others astray from finding faith and credibility in God when our Christian hypocrisy makes it plain that we don't really walk with him. The verdict against these prophets is also fitting to their crime. It's that they will cease to have any word or revelation from God. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision, darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced. They shall cover their lips because there's no answer from God. These false prophets being cut off from their supply of divine revelation will be publicly shamed when it becomes apparent to everyone that they don't really know God's word or have the ability to access it. What's interesting, however, is that Micah breaks this offense verdict, offense verdict pattern to now give us a contrast between the false prophets who do not seek God and twist his word for their selfish gain. Literally, what you put into their mouths 
determines what comes out of their mouths, Micah contrasts this with himself, with the Lord's message that is being proclaimed through him in verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. As I read verse 8, I can't help but thinking that, you know, this is not, this is not a prideful boast on Micah's part. Micah's not saying, listen, I've got the Lord and you don't. Neener, neener, neener. It is a very stark contrast between these prophets who their one job is to bring the word of God to his people and they've got nothing versus the spirit-filled man who with power and righteousness, not his own, declares justice and might with confidence and bravery because the Lord is with him and on his side. He declares a hard message with love. He declares to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. As I read this verse, I can't help but think that this is what Christians, every Christian, is called to do. We are called to be filled with these things, to be filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. What is a Christian without being filled with the Spirit of the Lord? Well, I can tell you this, he's not a Christian. To be filled with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his sin. We are also called to share with the world the message of forgiveness and of the gospel, but that message of forgiveness and of the gospel must follow a message of sin. But the problem is, do we shy away from declaring to the world its sin? Do we even declare our sin to each other or to each other our sin? This may break your comfy idea of church. But unless you are in a spirit-filled relationship, friendship with another believer who feels comfortable calling you out and declaring to you your sin, you are in great danger of being hardened by the deceitfulness of your sin and being controlled by it, by loving what is evil secretly, without knowing it. The danger of harboring sin like this, like we've seen, is it may well result in a self-centered lifestyle that revolves around your selfish gain, effectually revealing your inability to lead anyone closer to Jesus. This brings us to the last indictment, and this is a combined indictment against all of the leaders of Israel, the judicial rulers, the ones in charge of administering justice, the religious leaders, the prophets, even the priests. Verse 9, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice, make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests 
teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. The offenses listed is everything against what they are called to do. They are heads, rulers, judges, priests, prophets, and all of them are corrupt. They all take a bribe. They all forsake their office when the right kind of selfish gain rolls along. You had one job. And yet, all of them somehow think that they still have God's favor and they still claim his presence and his protection. Yet, they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall fall upon us. The verdict, again, is straightforward and simple. You think you're safe, but verse 12, it is because of you, your sin, your hypocrisy, that the following judgment shall take place. Zion shall be plowed as a field. Zion, of course, is another name for the mountain upon which Jerusalem sits. Arid, empty, forsaken. Jerusalem, a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house, a wooded height. Place for birds and lizards to nest in. This verdict drops like a bombshell for two reasons. One, the leaders are blind to their own sinfulness and to their own guilt. They don't see it coming because they think that they're good with God. They think that they are not in sin, and they think that there's no reason for anybody to be calling them out for their sin. Secondly, it's a bombshell because the Lord brazenly promises the destruction of the temple itself the mountain of the house. And he says it will become as nothing. The, the temple is the center of Israel's judicial and religious identity. This is what founds the people of Israel as the people of Israel. They are the people among whom the Lord dwells. Their, their way of life, their, their religion, their practices, their habits, their, their schedule, their calendar, it all revolves around the temple because they are the people of the Lord. But they're not. They think they are. But they're, they're empty, whitewashed tombs. And God is going to reveal to them what they actually are by completely flattening the temple mount. This verdict reveals that the people don't truly belong to the Lord. As John tells us, the truth is rather that they loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They had no desire to say, like Mike goes on to say, and this is stealing from the next chapter, but he, he connects chapter 3 with the beginning of chapter 4. The mountain of the house, a wooded height. And then he goes on with a promise of hope to say, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established and the people will all come together and they will say, come, 
let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The desire is to come and sit at his feet and to learn from him. But these people, going back in time in chapter 3, they have no desire to say that. They have no reason to go up to the mountain of the Lord to sit at his feet and learn his ways. That is the most uncomfortable thing that they could imagine. And my prayer is that that indictment and that verdict and the outcome of this chapter will not describe us. The truth is that this desire to come and go up to the mountain of the Lord, it didn't describe them. And it doesn't describe you. You don't want this apart from the gospel, which is why all of us need the gospel daily. When I share the gospel, I try to keep it simple for my sake because I, I lose my mind and get nervous. I have four points. Man, God, Christ, and you. In the first two points, I try to explain man and his brokenness and his sinfulness, that he cannot be fixed, he cannot be redeemed. He is inherently sinful and broken. And honestly, given our world today, it's not really hard to, to come to that conclusion or to lead someone to that conclusion that there's something desperately wrong with the human heart. Secondly, I contrast the desperation of humanity with the perfect holiness of God. He is so much unlike us. He cannot tolerate sin. He has perfectly righteous wrath towards it that glorifies his name. And that should excite us because we want him to be glorified. Man and God put in the same room presents a desperate problem. I cannot save myself. I can do nothing on my own. I have no goodness of my own. And therefore, I need a savior. I need righteousness to stand before the Lord of hosts. But I've got none. I need Christ's righteousness. So then I go into the third point, and I say, Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. He died for us on the cross. He rose again, taking the wrath and the punishment of God away, that God put that wrath on Christ. He turned his face away so that you might have life and righteousness in Jesus. That provision is made available to you, but that's not enough. You have to do something about it. You have to make a decision the question remains, what are you going to do with the knowledge of man and his brokenness and God and his holiness and Jesus and his perfect provision and sacrifice? You have to do something. Will you choose to recognize your guilt, to believe in the truth of these statements, to then in response surrender your life to repent of sin and actually call him Lord? Each and every one of us needs this initially 
at the beginning of our spiritual lives. And we need it daily. Because it's apart from the gospel, I don't have a desire to love. Apart from Christ in me, I have nothing good of my own. The reason why, as we read earlier this morning, that they don't want to ascend the mountain is that none of us can apart from the work of Christ on our behalf. The, the indictments against the people of Israel fit you. You cannot be just. You can try, but you will fail. You cannot love good and hate what is evil. You cannot handle God's word without selfish ambition, without Christ. Psalm 24 said, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, but that is not you. It's not me. It's only Christ. He who had clean hands and a pure heart who did not lift up his soul to falsehood, who did not swear deceitfully, he who is the just judge and the righteous ruler of his people, the true prophet who only spoke what the Father gave him to speak, he who ascended the hill of the Lord, who stands in the holy place, who is the true priest who intercedes, he who is the king of glory. He beckons you to come. And that is astounding. Who is this king of glory who speaks to me? I am a wretch. The thing is, the king does not beckon you to come without the surrender and repentance that changes you from the inside out with the life of Christ in you. He does not invite you to come as you are. Bear with me. I'm not hating on the song. I'm not hating on those of you who love the song. He does not beckon you to come as you are. The invitation is given to you as you are. Romans 5.8 says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you may come freely. But the invitation is not that you come and remain as you are. The invitation is that you come and clothe yourself in the righteousness of the Lamb from the inside out. That's why it's called Christ in me the hope of glory. I develop clean hands. I grow in a pure heart. I grow in a desire to go up to the mountain of the Lord and to sit at his feet and to learn his ways because it's the most precious thing that I could ever have. And I could not have anything else. Everything else falls away and becomes distasteful to me. But that's not me. It's Christ in me. This is my job as a Christian, to miss 
having Christ in you, while professing to know God, while professing to be in Christ, is to miss everything. To be the biggest oxymoron in history. A judicial official without justice. A prophet without the word of God. A Christian without Christ. In closing, let me share with you this passage from Matthew 22. If you want, you can turn there with me. In Matthew 22, Jesus gives a parable of the kingdom of heaven, a parable of the wedding feast. And Jesus spoke to them again, Matthew 22, verse 1, in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Who's this talking about? This is the Jews. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And the servants went out into the road and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Who is this? These are the, the Gentiles, the world, everyone, even Christianity, the church, those who are filing into the wedding hall. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Who is this? My greatest fear is that it might be you. You must come with righteousness for your garment. Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the You need a righteousness of the heart, the righteousness of Christ. And without it, you had one job, to wear your wedding And he was speechless. Don't come with your own clothes. You'll be just like 
these people in Micah 3. Come with the righteousness of Christ through your brokenness, your belief, your surrender, and your repentance. I implore you, do not let it be said of you that you had one job and you missed it. As I invite the worship team to come up in just a moment, I also want to invite you to come and pray with the elders to find help and questions answered, to let someone guide you to the truth of the gospel. Do not leave this place without surrendering your life to the Lord, without clothing yourself in his righteousness. As we sing the last song, Rich is always up here to pray with you. Come, come find us and don't miss out on your one job. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the astounding grace of the gospel. We recognize that we are nothing. We are wretches. We cannot do good on our own. And when we try, it's just filthy rags. We need you, Lord Jesus. We need you to come into our hearts, to cleanse us from the inside out, to give us new hearts and new clothes that reflect the new life that you make within us. And yet we also recognize that we desperately need you every day. We need your help in overcoming our sin, in choosing to love what is good, in being transformed and made new from the inside out as we grow in our ability to have clean hands and a pure heart, to love others. Father, I pray that we would not be a people of leaders, of priests, of prophets, who mislead the world because they see that Christ is not truly in us. Fill us, Lord, with power and with the Spirit, with justice and might, so that we may declare to the world their sin, to each other as Christian brothers and sisters our sin, and proclaim the message of reconciliation, of peace, of forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.